Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode, I sat down with my friend Kathy Coyle. Uh, Kathy was originally introduced to me via my uh, friend and colleague Marav Artsy. Marav actually worked with her. Uh, she did a, um, I guess you could describe it as an initiation using uh, mushroom psilocybin. And Marav spoke very highly of her. And uh, they became really good friends. And then uh, Kathy invited Marav and myself to come to Ireland, which is where we recently were and to bring the medicine that Marav and I are working with, working with tobacco and, and trees to Ireland and really to begin to integrate that medicine um, and kind of uh, merge these two different traditions together. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, Kathy also had the opportunity to, to work with us. And um, it was really a, a beautiful time. And I, I learned a tremendous amount uh, being in Ireland, beginning to work with some of the local trees there, which is something that I've been really passionate about, um, which is taking this uh, kind of Amazonian technology and um, working with more North American and European plants. Um, as I mentioned in the interview, when I was in New York last year, it, it was really amazing. It really felt like there was a whole forest, a whole pharmacopoeia of, of medicine and trees just waiting to be used. So um, this was a really uh, great interview for me to be able to sit down and talk to Kathy. She has an amazing story. Uh, she's Irish and she uh, she's done a lot of medicine work. She's a psychologist. She studied uh, Jungian analysis. Um, she's done various initiations with different plant medicines. She works a lot with mushrooms, with psilocybin. Um, but she's really drawing in a lot of different traditions and taking people on these initiatory journeys, which she talks about in this podcast. So it was a really interesting interview. We talked about that. We talked about uh, the, the Druidic traditions and, and Gaelic roots and... Um, it was uh, Celtic as well, and it was a really fascinating conversation. So I, I think and hope you all will gain a lot out of this. As always, if you are able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to bring on these uh, these guests. Patreon is a really good option. Uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all of the people who have done that, to all the patrons, thank you very much as always it's deeply appreciated and if you're able to do that uh, thank you very much in advance I, I really like the idea of sites like that which is really uh, working off this idea of reciprocity which is actually a very old uh, um, wisdom tradition so um, I think that's it. Uh, also, if uh, if you're not able to do that, as always, uh, some of the small things, if you're listening on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the videos, uh, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section, that's always a really big help uh, with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. If you're listening to this uh, going on, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, uh, I guess it's subscribing or following the show, leaving a starred rating and a short review. That's a really big help. So I think that's it. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Kathy. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze. Running out 
nice to see you again. Um, I, I guess I first learned about you through Marav, who I work with. Um, I think she had worked with you and she spoke very highly of you. And, um, and then it so happened maybe a, a couple of years later, you were interested in, in, I guess, bringing Marav and then eventually Marav and myself to Ireland to do our work. And that's how we first met in person. And, uh, you, you were doing a dieta and we got to connect more and, and I got to start to learn a little bit more about your work. Um, but in the beginning, Marav spoke really highly of you. So it was, a it was kind of a pleasure to learn about you through her and then to learn about you more through my own experience. So, Maybe to start, I mean, it's always a big question, but maybe you can just tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who's Kathy Coyle? <laughs> Where do you come from? How do you get to the point you are in your life uh, doing what you're doing? Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you for such a beautiful introduction and so grateful to Marav for bringing Mapacho into my life and for you to also bring Mapacho to my country in the way that you guys did. It's been it's been a beautiful journey so far and it's still only in the early days. So it's exciting to see what we're going to co-create in the future. A little bit about me. Okay, uh, this is the the golden question of structuring your 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 titling and <laughs> and your life history. Um, so I'm a psychologist, which is my you know my functional work, my day to day work, and I work from a transpersonal perspective. I'm currently studying for a PhD in transpersonal psychology, so up upskilling myself in that domain, and that forms a very deep part of of my work and my philosophy is the anchoring of the mystical into science or into you know merging logic and mysticism and merging science and mythology and then creating very transpersonal beyond the personal ways of of supporting people on their journey my core philosophy, I guess, and a lot of my core identity is around the practice of what we would call in Irish bandri. So it's ban, B-A-N, dri, D-R-A-O-I, pronounced dri, like D-R-E-E. And the bandri is Ultimately, it's a female druid would be one direct terminology of it or a female user of magic, a seer, an oracle, all of those sort of terms that we might take from different lineages and different cultures to describe women who work with altered states of consciousness or herbalism or mysticism working with the with the natural world, so to speak. The Gaelic term for that is Bandri. 
So I've been on a bit of a journey over the last 10 years in trying to reclaim my own heritage. So finding terms that reflect Curandero. So what is the reflection of that in, in my own native tongue and my own lineage on the native usage, usage in my land? And then making it modern. So trying to find, okay, I have this identity and I'm very much in communication with my land and the spirits of my land and the plants of my land and the herbalism and the healing potential of nature, the healing potential of vision questing and rewilding, and then merging that into a space that is accessible for the modern person, you know, ways that we can support CEOs and executives to come into this sort of commune with nature and with myth in many ways. So that's kind of the, the merging of the Bandri traditions with my psychology training. And in that sphere is a very deep reverence and respect for the medicine of psilocybin, which is, you know, in more commonly used terms, magic mushrooms. And I have a very deep relationship with this medicine that I've been cultivating over the past longer than a decade, 50, almost going on 15 years now, where I'm understanding this plant, or we could use the word soma, you know, using the Vedic term soma for this intelligence that is a, a direct communicator with the natural world. So I work where I can with soma, within regulations and rules that I can to, to support foraging and rewilding and introduction to wild medicine. And then I learn through my communication with the mushroom in many ways. And that's what I'm really passionate about. I have a podcast called Meet Me in the Mushroom, which is a space where I'm connecting with other people who have a relationship with psilocybin and beyond psilocybin. I'm also looking to expand that space even to maybe have a conversation around mapacho and how mapacho can be used to integrate the psychedelic experience or prepare for other plant medicine works and just create a broader broader field of conversation so that's my kind of sphere i i identify as a bandri a gaelic wise woman i work with the natural world i work with psychology and i lead retreats I lead initiatory spaces for mostly for women, but on occasion I do have some some male some male people that I work with in my spaces. And I'm all about using the plants or or connecting with the plants, not using, connecting with the plants to support us in understanding how to be better leaders. So a lot of my work is around really identifying how can we lead in the state that the planet is in at the moment? How can we get inspiration? How can we find creativity? How can we find personal healing? How can we remember the depth of our connection to the natural world and to spirit? And for me, the plant allies and the plant teachers are the most natural gateway to that. So I think that's a little synopsis. 
So I guess the the main ethos of my work is around supporting people to come to the plants and really learn about their inner authority, their inner purpose, their medicine, what is the medicine that they're holding so that they can then lead. I'm really passionate about supporting people, people in leadership roles. So figuring out who they are, what is their grounding, also the power of moving through any type of initiation with any of the plant allies and the fortitude you have when you come out of that space, the strength that you have because you've just experienced such a profound restructuring of yourself in every way. And once you come out of that, you know, you can deal with everything in life from a new place and from a new point of reference. So I think that's really, for me, why I'm so passionate about this work and why I'm so passionate about advocating for plant medicine and for the proper use of plant medicine as well, you know, with the integration and the preparation and understanding about frequency of use and how to just take it slow and really allow the medicines to work with you and to teach you. So that's me. Yeah, great. And um, you, you mentioned this idea of, of both Gaelic and Druidic um, ideas. Can you clarify those two? Because even for me, I think there's some confusion on that. And I imagine for a lot of listeners as well, how, how do you differentiate those two? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, an ongoing process, even for us here on the land, there's, there's a huge resurgence in Ireland at the moment of reclaiming our native ways of working. But within that, you, we have to acknowledge that there, there is a huge chunk of wisdom missing. So because of the colonization of the Catholic Church and also colonization of the British Empire, we had a massive eradication of our traditions. So a lot of the a lot of the written a lot of the written relevance and various systems were completely eradicated. So we're working from a space here on the land where we're having to sort of rebuild fragments of mythology and storytelling and lessons from the plants themselves. So, you know, last lessons from the dandelion, lessons from the oak by communing with these spirits and sort of restructure the traditions. There is a more formal practice of druidry you know if anybody watching this can go online and they can google druidry and there's orders of bards and very systematic type structures now when i speak to to it i'm not speaking i don't practice that form of druidry i myself would recognize myself more as a as a folk practitioner so i'm working more with folk medicine and herbalism and working with the mythology. For us, we have an interesting paradigm because a lot of people are aware of Celtic shamanism. So quite a big resurgence happening of Celtic shamanism. But it's interesting when you start to do the do the work and do the research, you realize that 
Celtic shamanism or the Celtic way of life was only on the island for a certain length of time. A lot of our traditions even predate the Celtic insurgents of, of peoples that came to the land and the, the Druids would have come with the Celts. So that's in, very intimately tied into the Celtic origins. But our sacred sites, our standing stones, Newgrange would be a very well-known one, um, the Hill of Tara, these sacred sites predate the Celts by 2000 years. So we had an active ritual way of living on this island before the Celts even arrived. So for a lot of us, as we're kind of reconnecting, we're exploring this history of Celtic mythology and pre-Celtic mythology, which we'd refer to as Irish or Gaelic mythology, which has overlaps with Celtic mythology, but also predates it. So a lot of our stories, a lot of our myth, these are these are pre-Celtic and we are kind of piecing back bits of information through the folklore. I think folklore is some of our biggest medicine at the moment to help those of us who are tr trying to re-identify with our roots are finding a lot of support and a lot of deep, deep medicine in, in the folktales that we have. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Can you talk a bit more about folklore? Because it's, I think it's something we really, in, in many cultures around the world, become removed from. And it, it was such a mm -hmm. fundamental part of cultures and societies all over the world. The, the, the folklore, the myths, the, the legends. And I think we, kind of in our modern perspective, we, we brush them off as just silly tales or children's stories, but there was a tremendous amount of wisdom that was being passed down through these. For sure. It's, for me, the journey back into myth has been one of the, the most beautiful things I've ever allowed myself to do as an adult. And I started asking questions quite a while ago, maybe in my late teens, I was asking questions like, in regards to the Irish psyche, I'll, I'll use this as an example. I felt like the psyche was so passionate. We have a lot of nationalism and this kind of thing in this country. And I felt like the psyche was attaching to historical events that happened in the 1920s and 1916. And, and this seemed to be as far back as the collective consciousness was willing to travel but yet we had these ancient ancient mythological tales which are full of such powerful examples of the human spirit and also the 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 tales in regards to the reverence for nature that exists within the mythology particularly within Irish mythology or or, or pre-celtic mythology celtic mythology there's such deep metaphor and such deep understanding of the traditions that were practiced on the land. And as a practitioner, I use mythology quite often, kind of delving into the depth psychology of Carl Jung, which I think was one of the most relevant attempts to bring back 
mythos into understanding the collective psyche. And so I look at it from a depth psychology perspective as well, as well as a shamanistic perspective. And from, from the psychology's perspective, it's like we have this myth and we have access to all of these stories, which tell us a lot, particularly, you know, today a lot of people are feeling quite disconnected. They're feeling quite displaced from their roots, from their heritage, from their ancestors. And that's making a lot of people quite sick. You know, people are having various um, spiritual emergencies or shamanic sickness and all of these contexts. And for me, the mythology is just a beautiful space where we can explore the stories of our ancestry. And even beyond the stories of our ancestry, for me as a modern day medicine woman, there's so much richness that I can receive from the stories of the ancient Greeks or the stories of the Norse pantheons and how women were in these civilizations. And it's really inspiring and it kind of gives a, it just gives a lovely space for self-exploration and it provides a very deep, deep medicine where we are seeking connection to, to living memory, which I find myth to be, there is living memory in mythology. And there are archetypes in mythology. So again, coming to Jung's depth psychology, the healing we can experience when we explore our archetypes or various archetypes that we're curious about. So one one archetype that I like to explore, who is again from the more from the Greek Hellenistic side of things, is the Oracle of Delphi. So I'm fascinated by the Oracle of Delphi because this is living evidence, mytho evidence. We know she did exist, but there is a lot of mythology around her as well. Where I have an example of a woman who advised kings and queens and huge chunks of the planet. She was the advisor working in very high oracular or trance states. So this gives me a, a beautiful space to research and explore so that I can start to piece together more understanding of my process as a woman who works with trance and isn't trained in a South American shamanic tradition. No, I'm looking for guidance to help me understand my process, which is very, very different to an ayahuasquera or corandero, that my work is different. And I, I'm looking for guideposts from Europe that can help me get a little bit of sense on, on the type of process I'm in. So that's what I love about myth. It's like there's so much wisdom and so much curiosity that we can in, in, inquire by just reading and exploring and then thinking, wow, these are the stories of our ancestors and these are the stories that have survived for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There must be meaning in that. Yeah. 
You, you mentioned this idea of uh, reverence for nature, and, and that's something that I think is really at the root of a lot of shamanic traditions. Why, why do you think that's so important? Uh, I mean, it's such a deep question, and just just from my my own, I guess, little backstory, my own development. For me, I was experiencing an extreme disconnection by the time I was into my early 20s. I was really struggling in many, many ways because I didn't understand how highly sensitive I was and how much I was having to cope with on a day to day because of my level of sensitivity. And that quickly spiraled into depression and when I came to plant medicines, for me, it was very fast. It was like I was introduced to plant medicines and then I realized this is home for me. This is home. And that was with entheogenic medicines. I started to go through a very powerful recalibration of my sense of self and identity and purpose and meaning and connection to the divine and connection to the earth and all of those beautiful things that you get through the entheogens, which is really, and you, you know, there's research on this. You do get that deep sense that there is no separation between me and the dandelion. Like we are all interconnected. We are all interwoven as one huge ecosystem. And from there, beyond the entheogenic medicines, and even, you know, Mapacho, even though I think there is a very mild entheogenic capacity as a nightshade, but understanding the depth of medicine that exists in all of the plants, everything we could possibly need is supplied to us by nature. All of our food, all of our healing, you know, communication aspects you want to commune with the divine then you have this medicine you want to heal wounds you want to heal tummy upsets whatever it is that we have this huge huge interrelationship with the plant kingdom and as a society we've i think we are starting to move back i think the pendulum is starting to swing and more and more people are very aware that in order for us to, to grow as a civilization, to evolve as a race of human beings, then we need to really reorientate ourselves back to the plant kingdoms and back into that reverence and respect and symbiosis with, with the plant, plant kingdoms. And that's a lot what I teach. So when people come to sit with me, often, before we even consider to do an entheogenic journey, I may work with them for six months just to orientate them to nature, which is simply becoming more mindful of the wind, becoming more mindful of your breath and your presence in nature, being able to really sit with nature. And that forms a huge part of how I work with the entheogenic experience because I don't want to just receive someone and sit with them with medicine and then send them away. For me, it's, it's a really intimate journey back into really deep communication with the natural world. 
So I teach that over a six month window, over a year, maybe longer, perhaps. I take people through very, very deep layers of reconnection to the natural world and helping them find recalibration for their nervous systems. So this is all, often what I find with, with a lot of people. We are really disembodied in many ways because our nervous system is so overstimulated all of the time from everything we're having to contend with in our day to days, from the electronics to the foods we're eating, to the travel we're doing, to the pace of our life. It's, it's a lot on our nervous system. And so we're often don't even feel really safe to be still in our bodies because we then have to look at, okay, my nervous system needs a lot of regulation. So the way that I work with nature is to remind people of their connection, but also to help restore their nervous system regulation so that by the time they come to an entheogenic experience, they're ready for that that we're not serving medicine to someone whose nervous system is completely dysregulated and then perhaps serving them an entheogen is going to just further dysregulate them. Have they now got the tools to understand how to be more mindful, to sit with meditation? Do they understand what native plants they perhaps have growing in their garden? that can support them in integrating a bigger entheogenic experience. So for me, it's really about weaving nature into your daily life and then also creating spaces for you to just be able to sit with yourself and sit with the natural world and use that as part of the process. So how would you how would you describe your work to someone who is maybe maybe not just unfamiliar with you but maybe even a bit unfamiliar to this work in general someone maybe who you said is feeling really disconnected they they may not even use that word like in con- disconnected the spirit but they're they're experiencing anxiety. They just know that something is off in their life. They're, they tried a bunch of things. They haven't found an answer. And maybe now they're starting to look at what <laughs> maybe at one time they thought would be some crazy path, but there's something about that that's drawing them in. That, that's kind of, yeah. they feel deep down that, that they know there's something out there that there's missing and, and they're, they're kind of putting their, their toes in the water and maybe they listen to this interview or, or they, they find you somehow. Mm-hmm. How would you, how would you talk to that person and describe what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Beautiful question. Um, so at the moment, my work is predominantly magnetizing a lot of women. So I'm, very passionate about supporting women to come back to a space of safety okay so feeling feeling really safe in who they are and feeling really safe in how to express who they are so i'll often get a kind of a scale of of people that i will attract a lot of women that are coming to me have met me through 
direct reference or kind of like with you and Marav that they just meet me and then they start to feel this deep kind of curiosity about how I'm working and they feel safe. They feel that they can trust me to be able to open up about layers and layers of conditioning that they've been carrying through their life. And how I position myself, I guess, is I'm, I use specific techniques to support people to release ancestral trauma, personal trauma, to come into a space where they can feel more in control of their emotional state, their breath. Breath is a big one for me. How do you, how deeply are you breathing? You know, how in your body do you feel in any moment? Because I think a lot of people don't realize how far out of their bodies they actually are. So I work in a way that breathwork is my foundational medicine. So I work with breathwork online and in person to really help get through the layers of trauma that we're holding in the body. So if a person is presenting with anxiety or if a person is, you know, really struggling with their voice, so being able to express themselves clearly or being able to ask for their boundaries to be respected, a lot of boundary issues that I work with with people. So I help them get really attuned with their breath, get really, really deeply attuned with their mindfulness. So working with mindfulness based cognitive therapy and helping people just orientate into the here and now. Then I have women who are potentially have been doing a lot of work for quite a while and maybe would have worked with different um Shamanic practices maybe have sat with ayahuasca or have sat with San Pedro or have done things like um, um, Vipassana and different spiritual development practices. And then they come across my work because they're looking to maybe deepen into a new layer of self-exploration. And that's kind of the space that I hold for women who are who have been doing quite a bit of work and now they're ready to step into a new layer of understanding who they are and understanding what their medicine is. So what is it that they have to offer the world? Because I'm feeling this with a lot of women right now that they're in a kind of an in-between space where they're wanting to maybe set up their own businesses or move into mentoring or teaching based upon their own skill and their own wisdom. And so they come to me. So I'd have a lot of executive women who come and maybe they stay with me for a week. We do one to one specialized retreats where they are the main focus of myself plus my team. And we give them that breathing space to just get really clear on where they're going and how they're going to get there. So it's I liken it to almost merging executive coaching in some ways with plant work with rewilding with vision questing so that you're bringing that flavor in of creating a lot of space so that people who are leaders really and I spoke to this at the start like I'm, I'm working with people in leadership roles to get very clear on how are they going to introduce eco psychology into their their businesses 
How are they making their work more sustainable? How are they managing their own energetics? How are they managing their time? How are they managing their money? And get really, really clear with all of this while also helping them to go through a metamorphosis through the support of the plant allies. You, you mentioned something interesting is that you tend to predominantly work with women. Um, is there, is there something that you feel, obviously you, you feel called to that, um, but maybe a bit more about why that is. And then also, is there something that, that in this path where you see maybe there's different roles for, for men and women, because they, it's a subject I find very fascinating. And, and I think in a lot of society, much like we were talking about folklore, myth, or tradition, also in, in a lot of these traditions, there were there were there was this idea of a role that that different people within a community or a tribe had these roles, and these roles were actually kind of outlined, and they they were archetypes, much like you were talking about with Jung. So do you do you find there's there's certain maybe archetypes of women or that they become disconnected to? And how would you differentiate that between the role of a man too? Because also kind of by de facto when you say you're you're working predominantly with women, uh you're separating that somehow. So you're 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 making that distinction. So what would you what would you say are those maybe in, in an archetypal way, what, what are those distinctions that you see? Yeah, it's been interesting because with my, I do, I also do group retreats, which are breath work based. And my group retreats are generally men and women. And I really love, I love equilibrium so when i have like a big group retreat i really love to attract as much as i can a balance of men and women and i love seeing men coming to the spaces and i do breathwork circles periodically and in those spaces i really welcome a lot of men and women but in my private practice my transpersonal psychology and my medicine spaces it's it's sort of found a rhythm of its own where I started attracting more and more women with a very similar, I call it avatar. So they kind of have a, have a slightly similar background or maybe they're presenting with, I'm sure you find this as well, that on certain years or in certain kind of seasons, I might have five women who are all presenting with a very similar theme. And what I realized was for me to be best of best service, I'm really well positioned to help women to explore the female archetypes because what I feel has happened is we've had a kind of a, there's a missing gap. There's a big link missing between female or feminine um, guidance systems, because if you think of it, we have all of these major religions, we have Muhammad, we have Jesus, we have Buddha, but we're really missing these female stories, again, tying into the myth and why I think myth is so important, because we're missing these huge chunks of female stories. We have a 
global sort of um, narrative that has been built upon the masculine in positions of power, whether it's the rabbi or the priest or the imam, you know, even within that sort of division of spirit and person, the access point to God has been through a male representative. And so my passion here is to remind women that there are stories, that there is a deep place for the feminine in the mystical expression. And that's where I work really, really well with reminding women of their mythical, their mystical expression. And I do feel there is a space for the masculine within that because I work very closely with my husband. You know, he is my medicine partner. He holds space for me when I go into trance. I require that masculine ground force with me and present with me in the space. And it was really beautiful to watch you and Marav working together because there is also that rhythm of this kind of embodied masculine and embodied feminine. And then we're learning from each other. So we're relearning structures from interacting with each other in that way. And it's, it's a complicated question because we have a lot of really powerful evolutions happening now in terms of our understanding of gender. I mean, it's all changing. Our understanding of gender and people who are identifying as different genders to their sex that they were born with. And so it's, it's a really complicated space also to hold this level of conversation, but it's a conversation I'm really inviting into my work. I want to know more about how would I work with a person that was potentially born a man that now identifies as a woman, like where, where is the learning there? How, how, you know, how does the space look in that way? So it's, it's definitely evolving, but without worrying about political correctness in many ways, I, I personally feel that there are not just roles for masculine and feminine, there are roles for all elements of gender and society and whatnot, but speaking just on the basic format of it, I feel that women really require a supportive space where we can understand our relationship with spirit and that we can remind each other and that we can remind society of the relevance of the woman in spirituality because she's almost been taken out of mainstream religion. The role of the woman has been taken out. And now we have this beautiful resurgence happening where more and more women are getting really curious about the nature of birthing and the nature of menstruation and the nature of their unique way of perceiving the natural world. And I think for the masculine and the embodied masculine, there's a huge space to, to be present for that, to hold space, to build the fires, to chop the wood, to really bring in that structural support so that the women can have, within our communities, can have more space for self-expression. So that's kind of 
as best I can answer that, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's it's interesting because even in a lot of traditional cultures like this, these initiation rites were, were different for boys and girls. And it's really interesting what you were talking about. And I think sometimes we, we overlook that, this, this idea that, as you said, almost all of these spiritual figures that were raised to believe in or to follow are men. And, and I wonder how much that changes women when they're also being taught a path that's maybe for a man. I mean, maybe it is for both, but, but when, again, when you look at a lot of traditional cultures, there was a different path for a man and a woman. And um, as you were saying, I think it's very interesting working with someone of the opposite sex because you, there is a dance and there is a learning and even you know, even like, for example, working with tobacco, the way I was trained, uh, if I had to engender it, it was quite masculine. Uh, it was very, <laughs> I mean, the first time I drank, it was this massive dose. I was passed out on the floor. I thought I was going to die. I, you know, and it was like that uh, for, for seven days. And, uh, and even the training was very physical, very difficult, very, very hard in a way. It was drinking big doses, like, pushing yourself to the limit. And, but I also see a real value in that. And, and I think that's something that I also noticed. And I think in a way I was maybe quite fortunate growing up. I mean, I, I grew up very close to the woods. I was boy scout. I was in the woods all the time. I was making fires. I was hunting. I was doing martial arts, which you know, again, a lot of these things have this kind of archetypal masculine quality. And so I, I never felt in a way I was lacking that. But it's interesting because I notice a lot more with young men, they seem to be lacking that. And there seems to be this real deep desire to reconnect with that archetypal masculine uh, quality. But then it's also been interesting, like you were saying, working with Marav, because I've also noticed like that's not how she works. And the work isn't degraded in any way whatsoever. It's it's a completely different way of working. And yet, because of who she is, she's able to carry that energy in the same way. And it's a much softer energy. It's a much more sensitive and intuitive energy. So, um, yeah, it's something I, I find fascinating is... It, I mean, you, you kind of answered this, but but working with your husband, do you find do you find yourselves taking on these roles that like is there something that that you find yourself gravitating towards more? And, and I guess it goes back to I mean, this is kind of a long question, but I guess it goes back mm -hmm. to that that initial idea that so many of these paths, as you were saying, they are a path that a man had walked before. And, and so I guess the question is, is through your work, have you been rediscovering a different way uh, that's maybe been lost that a woman can walk and achieve the same thing that's maybe been lost and, and in an archetypal way would serve a woman much better than maybe something that was actually designed in the beginning for a man? Yeah, no, I'm I'm really resonate with this and and this was partially why I felt to change my 
my more intimate spaces so my one-to-one work or you know I do trainings I only train women because I don't believe I can train a man like I can't train a man to do what I do (laughs) I don't know where to meet him because my sense of it is exactly what you said the masculine is seeking masculine expression so whether it's verbal expression or you know building structures using strength being being in that sort of masculine domain i can't teach that to a man you know i can can support a man to find the right pathways towards that and there are there are some times when i will work closely with a one to one with a masculine i have two men that i'm working with actively at the moment but they're kind of the the exception and interestingly those men are very much in their masculine you know they've they've already been doing the work whether it's working with um um intermittent hot and cold you know ice baths and bathing in ice cold rivers and getting involved in martial arts as you say so they've they've got that package there they've been doing that work so i feel safe that okay well i can maybe give some wisdom here and it can be received because they've already they're already pursuing those very masculine forms of expression. So what I find is, like you say, when I'm when I'm working with women, it's because I'm wanting to support them in developing exactly those qualities that you just reflected Marav holding the intuition, that real water like energy where we can hold in such a different way and remembering that those ways are really valid and that they are also required right now but there is this kind of for me and my partner you know when i when i work as a shamanic guide the nature of my work is i go into very deep shamanic trance so i work in trance states and i work from within that space to do soul retrieval or you know just working with a person to journey through a death process and whatnot and what we have found from our the nature of our dynamic is that he is the ground force so he holds space for me so that i can safely completely and utterly release into my gift and into my seership capacities and just fall into that safely with this masculine ground force. So holding the structural integrity of the space, if we need anything that he is there to get that for us, that he, he, he just keeps that foundation. And we've had this kind of ongoing conversation that my work is that kind of like again the watery kind of just flowing into the into the underworld or into the upper worlds and his work is to stay rooted like a tree and keep that strength of integrity to the space so it's a really beautiful symbiosis for us because i don't think i would feel safe to drop into that level of trance without that masculine energy there without that again this sense of safety which i think the the feminine is really craving through our dynamics that we are allowing each other to embody our roles and do it really really well and then respect each other for what we do differently 
and how we do it differently and how there's time for softness, but there's also time for strength. So kind of in keeping with what you were saying, one of my first teachers really taught me in a very masculine way. He, you know, I was brought into very intensive shamanic initiations where I was brought into the mountain, ingested my medicine, and then I have to hike the mountain with, with my teacher, but in the dark, without any help, in very extreme conditions. And this was how I trained. So I trained like you in very extreme conditions with my medicine, which has made me the, you know, as strong as I am in my medicine space now. And I appreciated that I had a masculine guide that could push me to my limits like that. So I could see what my strengths are. But then within that is also the opportunity, I think, for us to create learning experiences where where women can feel safe to be women, just to be women and be motherly and be mothering and be soft and be intuitive and be highly psychic and all of these beautiful gifts that we have and that there is space for those those initiations, as you say, to unfold. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, you mentioned this idea of, of, of trance or, or maybe channeling, and, and I think that's something that, that people have heard of, but, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And it is also very interesting because it does seem, as we were talking about this kind of gender differential, that it does seem to be predominantly on, on the female side. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because it's it, it's kind of a, I don't want to say maybe taboo, but maybe it is kind of a taboo subject. Like it's something that's very strange to people. Um, how would you how would you describe that? Yeah, I, I think it's one of these things that. Um, so as I was exploring and, and, and training as a shamanic guide, it became quite apparent that this is one of my gifts. So this is a, this is a skill that I have. And, you know, it, it's something that comes very naturally to my soul. But I think there's a bit of ambiguity with it at the moment, because there are a lot of conversations, particularly in the kind of more new age community around trance and channeling. And I'm not sure how safe all of that is, because I think a lot of people are just opening themselves up to experiences and energies without without having proper guidance or training or initiation to understand the complexity of what those states are. So for me as a practitioner, I, again, tying into the, the mythos, which goes beyond the mythos, this is not just myth, this is actual, you know, there's archaeological evidence for, for these examples I'm going to give you now. So in Norse mythology or in Norse folk practices, or potentially you could even say Norse shamanism, there were specific shamanic practices that were practiced by women alone. So one of the practices is called Seether and Seether is a trance practice that was a huge part of their tradition. So 
we're quite lucky because the Norse traditions is one of the best intact. So it's a lot of, there's a lot of really intact information that we can reference. We can understand their techniques and how they worked. And these practitioners would have journeyed into trance for bringing in higher gnosis or information, much like, you know, we have yogis that go into very deep transcendental work and then they come back in with these transmissions of higher information like the Vedas and whatnot. So it's, it's similar, but now you're looking at female practices of working in this way and also working with nature. And there's a lot of evidence of these types of states practiced in Irish um, tradition. We have a practice called Imbas Farasnai. And Imbas Farasnai is um, like inspired vision or inspired speech. And you'd have practitioners that would go into trance and then they would communicate through kind of like poetry but this would be inspired speech. So it's inspired by, by the divine or the, the, you know, the higher, higher worlds or higher beings. And then they would communicate poetry from the spirit realm. And so these practices can be used for healing. And I run a workshop, which specifically, specifically deals with this concept. And I, I do a kind of a run through different types of trance, which has a very strong historical record and also looking at various shamanic cultures. So across the board in nearly every shamanic culture, there is evidence for trance mediumship of some sort as a conduit for healing. So when I say that I work in trance, the way I would describe it is that I go into a very deep hypnotic state. So it's like a very, very, very deep hypnotic state. And then from within that deep hypnotic state, I can work with the person who's come to sit with me. I can work with them on the level of the soul. So I can work with them on where is their soul sick? You know, where is their sickness at a soul level? and then help communicate with the soul to reorientate it to the here and now, to allow it to release grief and to release pain and struggling because a lot of people's souls are struggling just with the environment alone that we're living in. So for me, it's like this very, very deep hypnotic state that just allows me to go a bit deeper than the purely cognitive than the mental fields or the physical fields and allows me to just really, really drop into a very deep layer of communication with the, with the being of the person. It also allows me to navigate with them while they're in an entheogenic experience so that I am with them wherever they go and I am experiencing what they are experiencing as they arrive at it. And then that helps to keep them feeling safe and feeling held because they're not alone in the process now. They can very viscerally and emotionally feel me with them and feel me working with them and journeying with them through through the experiences that they're having. And this is a this is a critical skill for in any established cultures, you know, whether you're talking about Marie Sabine from Mexico or any of the established cultures, this is how the women work. 
this is how they work when they help people to go through an ego death. And we have a kind of a thing happening at the moment where we have the very clinical application of, in this case, we'll use psilocybin. So, you know, you can, there's a lot of research happening around the therapeutic benefits of, of psilocybin, which is really, really, really powerful. But what I'm speaking to here is a more shamanic use of the medicine. So it falls more into a ceremonial type space than it does into a clinical space. And with the ceremonial space comes the ceremonial aspects um, that, that, that these medicines can be used with. You, you mentioned right at the end there, uh, working with psilocybin, and, and that's also when Marav worked with you. I know that's, that's how she worked with you. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I think that's something that's also, it's, you mentioned Maria Sabina, and that was her main medicine. And there's, in Mexico, there's a really long culture of, of, of working with, with mushrooms in that way. And even in, uh, I think, a lot of the cultures of, of people who are listening to this podcast, um, they're becoming more familiar with that idea of, of working with mushrooms um, and, and not just in a recreational way, which I think uh, people have known about for a long time. Um, I mean, I was even just reading the other day, uh, probably most people have heard of Mike Tyson, but he, he came back uh, maybe a year ago and, and did a, uh, a fight. It was kind of an exhibition fight against a guy named Roy Jones Jr., an amazing fighter also. But it, Mike Tyson was just saying that actually <laughs> that fight, he was under the influence of magic mushrooms, uh, which I thought was quite fascinating. So That's it funny. seems like there's a real resurgence, uh, you know, of people really using these and, and using them for all sorts of purposes. I mean, and it, it's, I think, becoming quite known, like in Silicon Valley and a lot of um, kind of STEM fields, people are microdosing. It's become a really popular thing. People are often asking me questions about that. And so, you know, even within the last few years, that idea has really spread in our culture, this idea of working with mushrooms. Um, but... Maybe not so much in this this shamanic way, which you're talking about, this this way that's rooted in tradition. So can you talk a bit about the mushroom and, and, and how you're working with it and, and uh, what you've learned and, and how it can benefit someone? Yeah. So it's interesting because when I... When I came to my master's in psychology, my whole intention was... I knew I wanted to work with psychedelics because I'd gone through quite a profound healing with psychedelics myself. And um, I had a family member who went on a very deep journey with, with a psychedelic medicine and experienced profound healing. And I was, I knew that what I wanted to do was I wanted to work with psychedelics in a therapeutic field. So when I came to my master's, it was, I, you know, I did a, I did some training with maths and I was really building my connections in the field because I believed I was going to work in clinical practice. I knew it was going to be psilocybin, but I believed at the time I was going to divert into clinical practice. And so I was on, you know, getting ready to apply for my doctorate in clinical psychology and all of this was happening. But 
in that time frame, I said to myself, I need to sit with psilocybin myself. You know, I just need to sit with it alone in nature because if I'm going to work with this medicine in a clinical practice, I really need to understand it from the inside out. And then the most incredible thing started happening where when I started sitting with the mushroom, I started going through this really deep initiation with this is the plant medicine of my land. You know, this is the wild soma. We have fly argic and we have liberty cap mushroom. And this is the medicine that the druids were working with. This is the medicine that my ancestors were working with. And I started going through this really deep remembrance of this way of working with it. So quickly, well, not quickly, but kind of unexpectedly, my very linear, logical psychology based direction in life started shifting into this shamanic way. And I mean, if you told me this 15 years ago, I would have laughed and been like, no, I'm a woman of science. I'm a woman of logic. You know, this is my, this is where I'm going with this. And I reached out to, I went online. I was like, I need to find somebody who's working with mushrooms outside of Mexico that can help me make sense of what is happening to me. And I found a lady called Shauna Holm who is in the US and she's really well known. She's very, very well respected in terms of being a psilocybin medicine woman. Um, she's the author of a few books. She's, she's amazing. So anyway, I reached out to Shauna and Shauna's also working with a similar, similar lineage as me. So she also identifies as Bandri and is working with the, you know, Celtic old Irish kind of mythos and grounding. So I reached out to her and she basically became my mentor. So I started mentoring under her as an established lineage holder, I guess, in many ways, she, she became the lineage point for how I am now working with, with the mushroom myself. And there was a few things like for, for example, in a clinical practice, you will go to a, not just in a clinical practice, but even with a few of my friends have psilocybin retreats in the Netherlands and the way that they work is you're blindfolded, you know, you have headphones, you're, you're kind of going into the medicine. But for me, the medicine was like, this is not how it wanted me to work with it. It wants me to work with it outdoors at night. So without light, which is actually how the Mexicans also work with it. They don't use any light and they don't use any music. So when I started getting that feed from the mushroom and then connected to some caranderos through a very good friend of mine who's in Mexico and started to find out, okay, they're also not using music and they're also not using any light. And this is the most established shamanic use of psilocybin in the world. So that kind of gave me a sense of peace that, okay, well, if this is how it's being done in Mexico and this is how the mushroom is telling me it wants me to work with it, then it's okay. Um, and so from there I started, I went into a very deep initiation over four years of 
sitting with the medicine and allowing the medicine to teach me how it wanted me to work with it. So in essence, the mushroom became my primary teacher. I had other teachers and guides like Shauna and I had a guide in South Africa who had been working with it for a very long time. And his way of working with it was kind of combining a medicine walk and a vision quest. So I initiated with him and I mentored under Shauna. And then somewhere in the middle, I started to develop a resurgence of a native way of working with, with mushroom as the mushroom was telling me it needed to be done. So this is what I mean when people come to sit with me, it's a really powerful where really testing again, holding this very deep feminine space of, of complete compassion for anything that might come up for really, really holding. We're preparing you for at least six months before the journey. So you're having transpersonal coaching sessions with me. You're having breathwork sessions with me where um, potentially working with a plant ally in some way. Like I often work with the medicine of rose, which is basically just making rose tea and drinking it every day so that your body can go through this sort of meeting of a plant ally. And then that prepares you for the mushroom space, which basically looks like an extended vision quest. So we're working in nature, we're working outside. I want to remind people of their capacity. So there's a lot of this with my space. It's like, this is your capacity and also because we don't have the rights of initiation. All right. So we're, we're, we're picking back up the recording. Uh, we had a little technical issue. So if we repeat anything or, uh, forgive us, but we're, we're picking it back up where we, we cut out at. So I was just saying how we're really missing rights of initiation and that's a big theme that I'm noticing even what, what Jason was speaking about earlier about, you know, as a boy, he was in the scouts and he did martial arts. And so he had a lot of exposure to, to more of our modern day rites of initiation or rites of passage, but on a very large scale, a lot of people haven't met the rites of passage that we require. So, you know, girls, when we bleed, it's an initiation, it's a rite of passage, but it's, it's, it's become so distorted where, you know, we're told, oh, it's painful, oh, it's a terrible thing. And uh, we're medicated or we're given tampons and just all of the ritual and all of the initiation that menstruation brings to a woman's life has been completely ripped out of our, our cultural sphere. So, Often when people kind of come to me, they're at a point where they are acknowledging that they have not been afforded the correct rites of passage that they need in order for their, for their soul to mature. And um, the Soul Crafting, the book by Bill Holland, I can't remember his name now off the top of my head, will come to me. Um, but in the book Soul Crafting, the author discusses how we have, we're basically like adult children 
because we haven't been put through the correct rites of passage in order to mature into adulthood. And so we're like these mature, are these adult children who haven't gone through the correct layers of initiation. And in the cultures that kind of precede the Abrahamic religions, the rites of passage that were involved were all nature-based. And these traditions still remain in a lot of the Native American cultures and in the Amazonian cultures. You know, they've got a big emphasis on rites of passage, also very much in some of the, the remaining tribal African cultures. There is still that ethos there. But what I'm witnessing is that people are actually craving it. They're, they're craving a rite of passage where their ability gets to be challenged very much like what your your reflection on your first tobacco ceremony, you know, it was so intense. You but you were you were capable of that. You were capable of meeting that level of challenge. And through that you go through this very quick maturation. So you're maturing in that space. So now your understanding of your capacity has just grown tremendously. So with the combination of the space that I create, I want to create spaces for rites of passage. I want women or the men that do come to experience a level of challenge as well as a level of initiation through through the, the scope of the space. So being in nature, being outdoors, working with the elements, working with the rain if it's raining, working with the cold if it's cold, you know, really just being able to be part of the natural world and be part of that level of initiation. And I think a lot of the cultural sickness that we're witnessing in people and a lot of the anxiety and the depression and the disconnection, it, it all stems from a sense of disconnection, ultimately. This deep sense of disconnection from purpose from meaning, from community, from connection. This is what the root of all, all sickness is ultimately, I believe. And so when people come, they're like craving, craving a, a reintroduction to initiation or rites of passage. And that's what we do with the, the type of space that I hold. We create rites of passage for people. It was really interesting because I'm I'm here in uh, Israel right now, where we were we just finished running another retreat, and um, here in Jerusalem, it's it's all of these very old, windy streets. The the buildings are very low, and there's something about that that I've always really liked. And I was talking to someone the other day, I I forget who, but they were saying that there there have actually been studies of how that affects people's mood, their well-being, that when you have these very large streets and very tall buildings, uh, people tend to be more unhappy. And again, I, I don't know the exact science of how this was measured or how this was studied, but it's something certainly I see in myself. And part of this idea that you were talking about, which is something I've seen a lot in my work is, as you said, there's this, this feeling of loss of purpose, this disconnection, this spiritual disconnection. And, and also, as you said, this loss of community, like people are feeling really alone. 
um, even the way our cities are designed in this kind of suburbia, people are spread out. They're, they're close, but they're somehow very far away. Um, you know, and, and again, in a city like this, I mean, this is maybe an extreme example, but I mean, people are on top of each other. There's just, there's people crowded everywhere. And, uh, you know, maybe that, maybe it's too close, you could argue, but, uh, but certainly that, that sense of, the loneliness, I think, is much less common here. Um, and also, obviously, a city like Jerusalem, there, there's a lot of spirituality, a, a lot of people practicing some form of that. But that seems to be a really common uh, theme, those, those ideas you mentioned, this disconnect, uh, the sense of a lack of purpose, lack of community, and it seems to be something people are really looking for. Um, in your work, how how do you address those things? Is is it is it a multi layered approach? Are you, as you said, you're you're working with plants. You're also working kind of on a one on one uh, way with people. But how? Because I, I think that's a question a lot of people have. And so, from your experience, how do you how do you begin to address something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely multi-layered. One of the, I guess, for me, for me, purpose, uh, personally, from my my work perspective, I have a very strong ethos of building community engagement. So, alongside my one-to-one spaces, I mentioned I also do sort of group retreats, and I also get involved in a lot of collaboration. So I'm involved in several teams here in Ireland and also in South Africa, where I also live, where we we really come together to create immersive experiences for people where we can also start kind of introducing our different um, streams. So, you know, I potentially might be working with 10 women for the year and then I'm introducing these 10 women into this community based space where we're gathering, whether it's. Mm. And they're playful spaces as well. It's kind of like holistic festivals or breathwork retreats and, you know, not such serious work, but more playful community type spaces. And I think as facilitators, we have quite a high degree of of responsibility for also cultivating those spaces. And I'm sure you see it with the tobacco where you know, you have people that come back to do further initiation with Mapacho and then that starts to build more community and you're, you know, you've people traveling from Switzerland to Peru and, you know, Egypt and Israel. And we're really creating a very multicultural international community. And this is the beauty of it. And I, I feel like when people start on the path or are introduced in some way to the plant medicine world, then I, I've seen it happen for people who, you know, I have one client who's almost 60 and she went through a divorce and she went through this huge crisis of identity, not knowing who she was because her whole identity was attuned to the marriage. And then she retired young and now her business is also her business identity is no longer there. And she's left with this question of who am I? Who am I? And 
also mirroring the lack of proper initiation through her life that by the time she gets to 60, her everything dismantles and she no longer has a, has a solid sense of identity. And I was kind of, you know, I would always guide in terms of, okay, this facilitator is amazing or this work is happening over here and kind of liaising between other spaces and other practitioners and different modalities. And through that, then she started to build community through finding the safe spaces. And we're also now creating spaces that are not based upon alcohol or substances, you know, legal substances in any shape, way or form, where, where we're moving people out of this sort of cultural belief that in order to socialize, you kind of have to go to a bar and have a drink, which is has been the norm for a lot of people, particularly, I would say, people from the generation of 50s and up. That was a big cultural thing for people. You know, you go to you go for a drink after work or you have dinner and drinks and it's kind of this way of socializing. And now we're at a point where we have amazing events happening. We have amazing community gatherings happening that are not based on those old ways of socializing. So we're opening up more channels for people to get involved with very diverse communities. And what's really beautiful as well is the types of people that are being attracted to medicine spaces. I think there's like a perspective that this is all very hippie and, you know, there's like hippies go to these conscious gatherings and that kind of terminology or that metaphor. But no, you know, most of my clients are very well-established professionals. I've got psychiatrists, medical doctors, very, very highly recognized people in their professional fields who are now merging into these communities and finding space a space for expression. So I really feel that the face of community is changing and that whether it's plant medicines or it's breath work or it's conscious dancing, whatever it is, there are new spaces opening for people to start to feel connection. And you can travel, you know, you can travel, you can come here to Ireland, you can work with me and I can introduce you to, we just had a, had a retreat last week and I had women from the US, I had women from Paris, from South Africa, and they left that space feeling like they'd just made a family. And that for me is really deep part of the medicine. It's, it's not just the one-to-one, -one, it's also the introducing people to spaces that I think will really help them grow and help them find community. You mentioned earlier in the, the podcast, one of the things you're really interested in or you feel called is this idea of merging tradition and science. And I think that's really important and something that's maybe overlooked. Um, I think often we tend to compartmentalize these things, e even this work with, with quote unquote psychedelics. It's, it's, taking on a very modern scientific kind of, as you said, clinical setting, um, or then maybe we look at something else and we say, oh, well, that's, that's traditional or it's uh, indigenous. And, but we have these very kind of separated ways of looking at things. And mm. I mean, humans, I guess, do that in general with almost everything. Mm. And <laughs> it, it's part of that separation. Um, 
But what is it that you find interesting about merging these paths of tradition and science? And, and what do you feel is the value of that? Hmm. Yeah, for me, per, for me personally, again, it's like the science is the anchor because as a practitioner, so if I'm going to take you, if you're going to, if you, Jason, are going to come to Cape Town to do a seven day vision quest with me in the desert and within that, within that space, we're also going to work with, with psilocybin, then I want to be sure that I am skilled enough to cope with the level of responsibility that you are now giving me for your psyche. And for me, the integrity of that comes from having a very strong foundation in psychology and really understanding the psychology of, in this instance, the transpersonal experience so that I can also identify things like how do I identify if someone's in spiritual emergency or if someone's in psychosis? You know, am I skilled enough to be able to pick that up so that I don't take someone into a situation that would be would be unsafe for them? So this is like for me, it's this it's this interweaving of wisdom. So while I'm developing and pursuing a highly esoteric tradition or, you know, rooted in a resurgence of the Bandri and the Gaelic wise woman who works with nature and works with spirit and works in this way, but also that I'm very, very grounded in the science of, of the mind and that I'm trained, whether it's psychometric testing so that I can test people to identify, okay, what's going on, also why I take so long to work with someone. So for me, I kind of work in reverse. A lot of practitioners who are working with psilocybin are working actively with people who are potentially experiencing um, trauma of some sort or actively working with depression. Whereas if you come to me and you're actively, you actively are dealing with depression, I will refer you to somebody else who's more suitable. I will not work with you myself because I wouldn't believe me to have the full skill set to to manage you in that way. Whereas I can work with someone who has experienced profound levels of growth and personal transformation, and I can support them in moving into the next layer of personal transformation. But in order to decipher and to be able to pick up the nuances of where people are truly at at a psyche level, then the science is essential because this is what gives me credibility to be able to trust me with your care and your mind. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that works with psilocybin or plant medicines should have a psychology master's or be, you know, be a registered psychologist. I'm not saying that at all. But for me as a practitioner, this is how I lead and how I teach integrity in the in the practice and how I you know, develop integration supports, pre preparation supports that I advise other therapists on. So I have several of my clients are established um, psychedelic therapists. Okay, so they are established psychedelic therapists, but then they work with me to support them on supervision to understand, okay, where they where they can get a bit tighter with their with their screening where they can get a bit tighter with their integration support. So that forms a whole other element of, of my practice. 
And that's where the science is essential, I think, because the science is also growing and there's a massive movement, which is absolutely brilliant and absolutely incredible towards using MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, you know, working with them in a therapeutic context. But what I don't want to see happen is that the heart of the nature-based traditions is now eradicated from the practices. And so I think there's room for being able to speak the language of both sides so that we can help keep keep some balance there. Yeah. One of the, the things that I've found really interesting is kind of in the same idea of merging um, tradition and science is this idea of also merging, but merging these seemingly disparate traditions together, to, to weaving them together. And, and as you were talking a bit about it in the beginning of the podcast, like this idea of, uh, like, how can I find guidance in you being European, uh, this kind of European shamanism or, or European spirituality? And again, uh, kind of a bit as I was talking about, it, I think as humans, we have this real propensity to separate to put things into boxes, to define something, to, to label something, and and not to find the commonality of things, not to be able to weave things together. Um, it seems like as we become more specialized, which is amazing, <laughs> we lose a bit of that broader, the, the, the wide angle. We've become really good at the zoom lens, but maybe the wide angle we've forgotten about this which is often tied to this idea of wisdom. Um, and one of the fascinating things in my journey and, and also what I've been feeling really more and more called to is also rediscovering all of these amazing, because a, a big part of my work is working with trees, uh, but because I lived in the Amazon mm -hmm. so long, I was working with Amazonian trees, which are amazing. <laughs> um, but when I, when I went outside of the Amazon, because also the the plants that I started working with were American plants, North American plants, uh, European plants. And then I found myself in the Amazon. But it's been really fascinating for me kind of coming full circle and using that technology that I learned in the Amazon, these amazing science, really, indigenous science. But I don't think you even need the word indigenous. It's a science. Um, that's been passed down through generations, through millennia of connecting with plants in, in a way that a lot of us have forgotten about. But now beginning to merge that science with trees, with plants that are more familiar to, to me and to a lot of people who maybe come from similar backgrounds that we do. Um, and I remember when I first worked in New York, one of the things that really struck me was just looking around the forest and just seeing all of these trees. And I felt like they were just waiting. They were just waiting to be worked with. They were just sitting there patiently, full of light, full of beauty, and like just wanting to be used. And 
it, it's been kind of revelational for me because I, I think a, a lot of people have this idea of the zero sum game of life that, that like, if, if I take mm-hmm. something, it's taking away from something else. And there's this beautiful concept in Taoism, which is the more you use the Tao, the, the, the more you pull water from the well, the more that it gives. And it's a very foreign concept to many of us. Um, but with this idea of these trees, that they are medicine. And if the medicine isn't being used, then in a way they're not fulfilling their purpose. It's it's like a flower. If no one's looking at it, it it's it still has its beauty, but it's not being appreciated. And there's this symbiotic relationship. And so that flower is, is even more fulfilling its its purpose when someone is able to appreciate its beauty. And so the same way with these trees, with this medicine, there, there's so much medicine all over the world. Um, so <laughs> I know this is kind of a, a roundabout question, but, but can you speak about that idea of maybe merging some of these traditional paths, like you were saying, like in, in Mexico of, of Maria Sabina or these traditional paths of, of mushrooms, but, but bringing it into a more culturally familiar context. And also in this way, mm-hmm. like it was one of the, the things I found very fascinating in, in Ireland. Um, and, and I'm sure some is, uh, how to, how to say it, like, some is is the people we were working with are obviously maybe more connected to plants, maybe more connected to their traditions. So it's not necessarily like a, a representation of the whole of Ireland. But one of the things mm-hmm. I found very fascinating was how working with this system of, of working with tobacco, working with this Amazonian system, but working with native plants, working with the oak tree, working with with trees that are native to that land, really, I don't know if reawakened is the right word, but but connected people to their roots in, in an amazingly beautiful way. It was like this remembering, this rediscovering. And as you said, I, I mean, I, I'm i not the person to talk about Irish history, but from the little I know, it, it also, as you said, there there's a very sad history that there is this colonization, this, this loss of, of language, of a, a very systematic suppression of things. And and, and that's one of the ways you dominate people is you take away their history, you take away their language, you take away their myth, you take away their folklore, because that's actually what connects people to this knowledge that's from time immemorial. And so to see people reconnecting with that was, was very beautiful and inspiring. So can you talk a little bit about maybe that? Because, you know, it also seems like that's a big part of, of what you're looking for, too, is is merging this these kind of traditions, but bringing them into a context that's that's familiar with people. Because, as you said, there's yeah. there's so much more of a power. I mean, if I give someone an Amazonian tree, it's amazing. It connects them to those myths, to those folklores, to that cosmovision, which is incredible. I mean, it can be eye opening. But that person also doesn't necessarily have access to that tree. When they go back home, there's it, it's always with them in a way, and and it's it's incredibly life changing. But there isn't that ability to physically go out to that tree to to make an offering to it to begin to 
to work with the medicine, to work with the flowers, to work with the bark, to work with the fruits, uh, to begin to give it as medicine and even just to be in its presence, you know, there's, there's such a different connection that's developed when, when one has the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, I mean, this is central to a lot of my, my teaching and my, my passion really is around reorientating people to their, what is on the land where they are living. So if I'm working in, in South Africa, for instance, I work with a couple of trees that I myself have, have initiated with and quite a few plants that I have, I have sat with and I have dieted myself. So I've sat with an extended fasting and meditation with certain trees. And so if I'm working with a woman in South Africa, then if, if I'm called that, okay, we're going to work with the tree essence, you're going to learn from the tree. So the tree is going to be your teacher. What are the qualities of the tree? What is the mythology of the tree? What are the folk traditions of the uses of this tree in, in, in the South African instance, in the Khoisan, you know, what are the Khoisan legends of this tree and how do they use it? And so I weave that in and I, I, I have a hold a high degree of integrity around if I'm on a landmass, I am only working with what is native. So I won't even work with oak in South Africa because it is not indigenous to the land. It was brought in through colonization. So I'll work with milkwood or um, white pear or some of the native indigenous trees, basically. And I have an amazing teacher there who has supported me to learn about these trees. And I mean, I'm still, this is a lifelong spiral to, to move through the trees. So I try to really emphasize a acknowledgement of what is native and then develop a practice around communicating with that. So again, in the merging of the sort of science or the psychology and the, the, the sort of mysticism or the native traditions, my teacher in Ireland is um, a woman who, Marta Gaberbast is her name. She's, she's Spanish, but she's been living in Ireland for 20 years and she's a Celtic Iberian shaman, but she's also a, um, a conflict resolution specialist and she works in some very high-end conflict spaces. So she's also of this kind of vibration of very highly academic, but also very deeply ingrained with a very deep tradition. And she's been teaching me how to apply a technique called focusing, which is a somatic psychology technique, which was designed for using with people to speak them into their body, to help them work through trauma, to help them connect to their inner knowing. And this is a, psych a, psychologic, a psychotherapeutic practice, which she is teaching people how to apply with trees. So we're taking this approach of moving into the somatic layer of the body and we're applying it to working with the tree. So this is a really beautiful example of a more modern way of actually engaging the trees because there's huge therapeutic potential there. There's massive, massive therapeutic potential by sitting with a tree and 
wanting to learn from it, because this is now going beyond our comprehension of the intelligence of trees as well. We're now moving into this oak tree can teach me things. It can teach me things about the land. It can imbue me with certain capacities, strengths. It, it can fortify my spirit, my body, my mind. It can help me come into deeper communication with my ego. And, and there's huge learnings from the trees. So when I first heard about how Mapacho is used with the 12 sacred trees in the Amazon, I got really excited because I thought, oh, wow, this is another technology which could be applied to my land, to Ireland, to help those who are willing to reconnect to the library of the trees that we have here. And so that was one of the reasons I got so excited about Mapacho and about you and Marav coming to Ireland and dieting with the oak and working with the, with the indigenous trees and also then introducing this Amazonian medicine to this native tree. And then they're developing a relationship, which is so powerful. And, and so the trees are a very deep part of my medicine as well. And it's so simple, like, a lot of this is rewilding eco-psychology. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. It's eco-psychology. It's like, okay, we're wounded, we're disconnected. How do we, how do we open again, even a sense of community? If you can build a sense of community with the trees on your land, then you're already starting to distill a new sense of hope, a new sense of respect, a new sense of connection. To the natural world and and it's it's beautiful it's really really beautiful medicine and the thing i like about the trees is for me the psychedelic space is really powerful but i only offer psychedelic medicine a couple of times in the year it's not something i do very frequently the core of my work is working in non-entheogenic based spaces to deepen our communication with with ourselves and with the natural world and the trees are an amazing guide they're amazing and again the education around we have native medicines on our lands we do not need to necessarily fly to peru to learn from the plants we can do it exactly where we are seated there's lots to learn. They've got so much to say. One of the things I found really fascinating, I, I learned this a number of years ago, was this idea, um, and that the name has just slipped me, but the, the native language, the, the om, is that how you say it? That, that it was, oh, it was yeah. tied to, to trees, that, that every letter in the alphabet mm -hmm corresponds to the, the letter of one of the trees, which is fascinating, mm -hmm. you know, and each of those trees has its own medicine, has its own mythology, has its teaching. It's, um, are you able to speak any about that? Because I think, I mean, that's just something that's so fascinating. I mean, it, it it's hard to get more direct than that. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's here. And this is again, what I mean, when you just look a little bit, you'll find there are still intact lineages which we can actively work with and so in terms of the trees 
we basically have them divided into four categories. So you have the nobles of the wood, which would be there's seven trees. It's um, oak, holly, yew, apple, hazel, ash, and there's one more, which, oh, Scots pine. So those are the seven nobles of the of the wood in Brehen law. And so you've got the Ohm, then you have Brehen law, which was basically one of the oldest and most highly advanced legal systems in the Western world was the Brehen law, which was based upon the Ohm and based upon the relationship that the Druidic cultures had with the trees on the land here. So the nobles of the wood, you know, they were only to be used ritually by very high priests or priestesses, very high druids would have been able to harvest from those trees for specific works. Then you had the commoners of the wood, which would have been things like the hawthorn tree, um, wild rose, different things like that. And then it goes down, there's, there's other categorizations, which then becomes things like um, heather and more kind of brush-like plants. But they were categorized according to their usage. So what was their medicinal use? What was their ritualistic use? What was their commodity usage, basically? And there were very, very, very strict laws about harvesting or taking any part of the tree, even down to things like on certain days of the year, like the summer solstice, for example, you could not harvest from a hawthorn tree on the summer solstice or from an elder tree because on those days there, the tree is basically, um, it is doing work, you know, it is actually doing geomantic work with the planet on those days. So you do not harvest from them on those days because the tree is busy with very important work, you know, so there was, there's all of this wisdom and thankfully that wisdom has stayed, that has remained despite all of the eradication of our traditions, that information has remained very, very much intact. And it acts as a really good guidepost for, for me, myself, and for others who are working here to understand, okay, this is the kind of personality of the tree, just like in, in the Peruvian cultures, I know that when you sit with a specific tree, it's because that tree has a specific set of gifts and skills that it transfers to you. So it's the same thing with these trees. We know if we sit with oak, that it has its own library of characteristics and skills, which it can imbue into the practitioner through prolonged dieting and meditation and, and coming to meet with the tree. Yeah, that's amazing. Can you talk a little bit maybe more about how you've been learning to work with trees? Because I, I think for someone who's not familiar with that, that sounds really strange. Like how, how is a tree yeah. going to imbue qualities upon me? It's just, it's a tree there. <laughs> um, so I know that's a big question, but is there anything you can you can share about how you found yeah. these these trees can be uh, teachers, medicine guides? 
Well, I'll give an example of some of the initiations I've done with the oak trees. So one of, so I have a teacher and um, she lives in Galway and I travel to work with her and she, she holds space for me remotely. I go to the forest on her land and then I just go into the forest and I sit. So an example of sitting with the oak would be I would would make a pilgrimage to sit in the forest for six days or seven days or three days, you know, depending on where you're at with this type of work. Maybe it's quite new. So maybe you, you wouldn't go in for a full week. You might go for three days and you basically fast. So you're you're not eating anything for that those couple of days, but you are drinking um medicine which has been made from the oak tree so an extract of the oak you are drinking that and you're drinking that throughout the day each day that you sit there and the beauty of this is you know when I first went to sit with my teacher she kept reminding me she was like this is going to be really mundane it's not going to be this big visionary experience or this big spiritual experience and this, you know, huge transcendental understandings or mystical event. It is going to be so mundane. And that's really what I really love about this work. And particularly for anybody that's a facilitator of any sorts that's watching this, I can't emphasize how essential this work is because coming to the mundane and having, you know, being in the forest, so you're in the forest, you're alone. You've got all of this space to sit with your mind, to sit with your emotions, to sit with the things, the worries that you are coping with in your day to day life. So now you're coming and you're sitting in, in the forest and the only friend you have is the is this oak tree <laughs> and you're you're sitting with it you're speaking to it you're just expressing kind of you know stuff that's coming up for you or you're sitting in meditation and you're just being afforded this really beautiful space to appreciate stillness to appreciate nature to appreciate the ordinariness of nature so that you can remember that this is very ordinary, that sitting in the forest and feeling comfortable to sit there is a very ordinary thing to do. And there's so much medicine in that. And it might make sense as I'm saying it now, but trust me, when you can go and sit with yourself for six days in the forest, fasting with the only kind of friend you have is potentially a squirrel and this tree, you will learn a lot about yourself in there. And what is this, is this trans transference from the tree? I guess it is again, very subtle communication. So we'll talk about the oak. When I came to the oak, one of the big kind of epiphanies I had was it's got the deepest roots and the highest branches. So for me as a facilitator and a guide, I need to know I have the deepest roots, that I am grounded, that I am rooted, and that I also have the potential to reach up to the sun and bring in all this light. And that was the metaphor that the oak was teaching me it was like okay you need to develop your roots now if you're going to do this work you need to be really 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 strong 
if you're going to receive this much light, you need to be really anchored. And that was a lot of the journey that I've been moving through with Oak is just really establishing myself at that, at that rhythm. Um, and then also just appreciating the complexity of an intelligence that is hundreds, if not thousands of years old. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, I, I remember when I first started, uh, dieting with with my main teacher he would he would say the qualities of these trees and uh, you know there, there was always kind of this doubting quality in me like is he just making this up or you know like <laughs> yeah. but it's been fascinating it's been it's been i mean maybe miraculous is a strong word but but maybe not um but just seeing how time and time again these trees teach in this very archetypal way, and they each do have their own teaching, um, which often is very much embodied, like you said, in, in the shape of the tree, in the structure of the tree, and in the fruits, and how it grows in the forest. And then there's just mm -hmm. this this also sense that each tree has its own its own inner teaching, its own guidance, its own spirit its own allies if, if those words resonate with people but that that they all have their own personalities and that by by working with those mm -hmm. trees they they get you in touch with those qualities that are within you and they begin to build those within you and strengthen those within you and and share that wisdom with you and it's it's very fascinating mm -hmm. and it, and I think that's something really important that you said that that a lot of that work is more on the subtle level. It's not just necessarily these like one after another, your mind is blown and you have these, you know, huge downloads. A lot is really going inside and shedding these layers and by shedding them, you begin to really discover these things. So it's very mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, I know that you fairly recently started a podcast. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, so my podcast is called Meet Me in the Mushroom, and it's housed on a new entheogenic community called Awake.net. So Awake is busy building at the moment, and it's going to be a beautiful space for people that are curious about plant medicines or psychedelics or clinical therapy and also for practitioners from everything from ketamine therapists to ayahuasqueras to come on and start to build a community where we can share lessons on integration, lessons on um, research and various practicums. So it's, it's, it's building, it's, it's slowly building. So that's awake.net. And then my, my podcast, Meet Me in the Mushroom, is exploring psilocybin very much in tune with what we've been, the narrative we've been exploring here, where I'm trying to bring in a varied, varied practitioners. So, you know, I'm, I interviewed um, a woman from Yale University who's involved with the psilocybin research over there. And she's also a mindfulness therapist, psychotherapist beautiful woman involved with the clinical application of psilocybin for, for trauma. 
And then I also have a British occultist who has been working with psilocybin and magic and just this really varied group of people so that we can start to build quite a creative conversation around how people are working with this. Like you said, there's this huge resurgence. Lots of people are exploring mushroom in particular because, you know, this is the largest consciousness on the planet. The mycelium network is the biggest living organism on earth. So there are psychedelic mushrooms, no matter where you are, they grow their wild. So it is almost like this universal medicine. And I think a lot of people are really feeling that. And so I want to create a space where we can just get a little bit of a taste of how different people are exploring this medicine and how they're working with it in a professional sense or from a spiritual sense or in a clinical way and just have a bit of, um, yeah, entertaining narrative around that, educational and entertaining. You said that you can find these mushrooms all over the world. Do you think, because from my understanding, in, in many cultures, uh, a lot of people either were unfamiliar, maybe they had forgotten those traditions. And it, it was really, as you mentioned this, uh, like in Mexico, uh, Maria Sabina and, and a number of other people uh, began to, to bring this back to the forefront. Um, and yet I think there are a lot of references when you look back in history um, to people using mushrooms um, I mean, all sorts of plants, but but even in Europe, you see that. Um, do you think that's something that somehow got lost or it was demonized? Or do you have any sense a, a bit about the, the history of, of the mushroom? And, and because also in order for there to be like a resurgence right now, it means that it was either lacking or somehow lost. Um, but my sense with a lot of these things is that they were lost, that, that, that there's, there's a remembering happening now rather than a, a discovering. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting people doing various research, like, um, Darren Springer is a British Caribbean, um, Afro-Caribbean man that I interviewed for the podcast. And he does a lot of really powerful workshops around the history of the mushroom use in Africa. So he's busy with like re kind of connecting a lot of dots and finding a lot of very strong historical evidence. And I'm finding that as, as I'm dipping my toe more and more into the broader community, I am finding there are more and more people who are piecing together the bits of information we have. And there's more information than I think we realize. A lot of it is in art and a lot of it is in the kind of the, the prose of mythology, you know, it may not be spoken about outrightly, but if you sort of allow yourself to have that broader perspective, you'll start realizing, okay, they're potentially speaking about mushroom here. So there is, there is correlations happening. I think it's been forgotten for what reason, I don't know. Um, 
I do think that there were central usages of mushrooms in Greece within the Ulyssian mysteries. Definitely here in Ireland, there was a strong, strong use of, of, of the mushroom and its seasonal growth is, you know, there is still quite well-respected traditions in Mongolia, Siberia, where they work with Amanita. So it just is, I think we're having to just sort of scrape past a little bit of um, a bit of dust and the information will start to come up. And what I really feel about the mushroom as well is that it is a living library, just like the oak is a living library. And when we start to work with it, it starts to return memory to us. It's like the Internet. You know, the mushroom for me is really the mycelium highway is the Internet. It's like you can tap into so much information within that sphere and people are starting to remember different ways of working with it. And I found when I work with the mushroom on different land masses, I get completely different streams of information that are really linked to the geography of where I'm working with it. Yeah. Well, Kathy, we're coming up on over two hours. Um, this has been amazing. Is, wow. is there anything that we, we didn't touch on that you would like to talk about? No, I'm super happy. <laughs> it was beautiful. Thank you for giving me so much space and to go into such interesting uh, reflection. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I, I think you have a, an incredible presence and, and I think you're doing beautiful work and uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to you as well for kind of bringing myself and Marav to Ireland and uh, allowing us to, to bring that medicine to that land. It was very, very inspirational. Uh, I'm sure for both of us, but, but speaking from my end, it was uh, very much so. And, and, and I think something, uh, that, as you said, is beginning to build and, and I have a feeling we'll, we'll be back and growing and, and morphing into something, uh, I think quite beautiful. So, um, thank you very much for that and for your presence and the work you do and, and all the ways you're sharing and, and helping people. And, um, and thank you so much. And, uh, I'll, I'll let you know when this is out and, um, and I'm sure we're going to be talking again in the, in the pretty near future. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was really a pleasure for me to sit down and, and talk to Kathy. We've uh, connected before, uh, but it's always really interesting to, to sit down with someone in kind of a, a more formal format and uh, to really learn more about them. So I think she had a lot of beautiful wisdom to share and uh, she does amazing work. So I, I think and hope you all uh, got a lot out of this episode. As always, if you are able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to bring on these guests, to, to make these shows, to edit them, to produce them, shoot them, all of the things that that takes. Um, Patreon is a really beautiful option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers also give you things back, things like early access to these uh, episodes, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who have done that, to all of the patrons, thank you very much. Your support is really appreciated. And if you are able to do that, uh, I would really... Um, like that. And it's always really, really appreciated. 
Um, if you're not able to do that, as always, some of the really small things, if you're viewing this on YouTube, um, subscribing to the show, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any uh, comments in the comment section, that really helps with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. And if you're listening on this, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, subscribing or following the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review, is a really big help. So uh, I'm actually shooting this. Uh, we just finished our, our plant dieta retreat here in Israel. Um, I had shot an interview prior to this with a woman named Linda Christine Adams, who was recommended to me by Kylia Taylor, who I interviewed in a previous episode. Uh, and that was a really interesting conversation. She's done a lot of uh, different plant medicine work, studying a lot of traditions. So that's a really interesting episode. We ended up delaying that interview a little bit because she's in an initiatory process herself. So we delayed it until she uh, emerges from that experience. So I think that's it. Um, I'm not sure of my guess after her, but as always, I, I look to and hope to bring on some really fascinating people. So I hope this all finds you well. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for the support, and I will see you all in the next episode. Doom.